Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hey Olivia. Hey Micah. How you doing? Doing well, you know, a lot going on this week. It's another week living in the pandemic in yes. 2020. Yeah, that's true. At least here in the States, it is still pretty crazy in general. And we have been busy working on leak Absolutely. stuff this week. In the last few weeks, we just released an awesome bonus podcast episode. If you didn't catch it, it's an interview with the extremely impressive and your personal friend... Lynn Yoon, who is a really cool type designer. She's like worked at a bunch of big companies and ad companies and big type companies making fonts and had a bunch to say about like career trajectory and finding yourself and tinkering with random stuff that isn't even fonts and lots of cool stuff. Yeah. I think she's made like a lot of career moves throughout her um, professional career and she's even started a Kickstarter that. Her goal was 4000 She raised, I think, over 10000 or something. Nuts. Yeah. So definitely a great, inspiring to add on to our resume. Yeah, and we're hoping to do more interviews as kind of bonus content like that because it's fun. It's neat to meet people who are doing really interesting things with typography and, like, design education and stuff like that. So if anybody has any suggestions for somebody we should interview that would be fun, hit us up on instagram or twitter or email we would love to talk to more cool peeps absolutely okay diving into this week our first article was about the differences between typography and lettering and we're gonna wait till our nerd alert to talk about some of the points made in there because our nerd alert this week is about the differences between custom lettering and typography and the cases for using one or or the other or maybe a combination of both uh so we're really excited to dive in i have a few no, a lot of notes actually on the topic. Let's jump into our second one. That one is equally as exciting and it's letting trim the future of digital typesetting. So Micah, you found this link this week. Can you tell me what intrigued you about it and why we're sharing it? This tied directly into a link that we shared a few weeks ago called Capsize, if you remember that. It was this tool to cut the excess spacing out of fonts with a few CSS hacks. It was like a code generator. And I remember on the podcast, I was trying to explain why it was so useful for a tool like that to exist. And it was kind of tough to explain why that was necessary. And then I, was, I saw this, the same developer tweeted this article, which goes into a lot of depth into exactly why that tool came to be and how basically the group that decides what goes into CSS has started looking at making these adjustments. So the context here is that fonts have their own sizing mechanisms. There's a bounding box in a font that adds space above, below, and to the left and to the right of any particular letter. And a lot of desktop software has an idea of where the baseline is, like where all the letters line up at the bottom so that you can align your type really rhythmically, really evenly, good spacing. But the web just doesn't have that. And so all that extra space, it's really tough to even figure out where the heck the bottom of the letters are to line up. That's just like not built into browsers. And this is an article that 
details how that works in a really simple visual way. So you can look at some of the visuals, even if you're skimming, and be like, oh, I get what's going on here. And then describes how they're working on this new experimental property in CSS to be able to automatically cut out the extra space and make it really easy to line up type evenly on a web page. Yeah, I mean, this was totally a concept that I was not really aware of, but certainly outlines it really well in this article. And I think even when I'm doing print design, sometimes you make a text box and there's like kind of just extra space that is unexplained. And I'm sure it has to do with the font metrics, like it says in this article. So that's, I think, something that if you're a print designer, you can kind of compare a similar frustration to being like, oh, like this text box thinks that I want all this extra space up here or space down here. And I really don't. And it's kind of like a similar comparison. Something that I thought was really interesting was at the end, they talk about some of the standard font formats in OpenType and how maybe this can change fonts outside of the web. And they even discussed that OpenType has robust support for Latin scripts and Chinese, Japanese, Korean languages, but it still lacks key metrics for other less commonly used writing systems like Hebrew or Thai. So I like the idea that this can possibly kind of expand itself and become bigger than just the web and, you know, expand to the democratization of typography. Yeah, you know, so I was working on kind of a fun sort of secret side project a couple months ago where we were kind of inspecting the guts of a font. And it is shocking how little information is actually inside a font about what the font looks like. Really? Basically no information whatsoever. Like there's optional tags that type designers can include if they want to, but often don't. And mm -hmm. like there's, there's some description of you know, with math and numbers of where the baseline is, how far up an ascender goes and stuff like that. But even something mm. that everybody takes for granted, like is this serif or sans serif? That is not information that exists inside a font. In the metadata, you mean? Right. Absolutely. I think that's probably something that's been taken for granted for a little bit of time. And, you know, there's rules and we've all been following the rules. But like you said, as more fonts exist, holy moly, like we have to organize these fonts. Like there are font servers with 40,000 fonts on there and it's no help to anybody if like that's not organized in a way that's easy to digest. I can see a future where those sort of tags will be helpful because, oh my gosh, our libraries are just getting bigger and bigger every day. Right. Which to be fair, that has nothing to do with this article, but that's a fun tangent to go on. One of the things that I did actually yeah. think that they visualized really beautifully in this article is how you can make a button with text inside of it and you can you can evenly space, like put six pixels on the top of your text in the button and six pixels on the bottom. It should be perfectly aligned, but it looks bottom heavy. And that's because of this weird mm -hmm. extra space that exists. And so you end up having to optically align with weird negative margins and stuff like that as you're coding. Like you need a designer's mm. eye to be able to code to make it look right. When not that a designer's eye isn't useful, but like you shouldn't need it. You should be able to say, hey, this exactly. is even space on top and bottom. And so it should line up. Totally. Yeah. No, I definitely, this was very eye-opening for me. So I'm glad you shared. Yeah. And speaking of the guts of fonts, our next article was just like a cool resource that I found that I thought would be useful to bookmark. I feel like you would like this I, one. I unexpectedly loved this article. <laughs> so it's called White Space Characters to Copy and Paste. Um, and it's for quickly copying and pasting Unicode white space characters. And 
they actually have quite a bit of educational content at the bottom as to when to use these white space characters. So what are these white space characters? They are hair spaces, zero width space, punctuation spaces, thin spaces, N spaces, M spaces. There's a lot. I think a lot uh, of people so, don't know that any of those exist, to be honest. And so that's kind of I why I think this is cool. I didn't know any of those existed. For so I mean, I yeah, knew, there were yeah. a few of these that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know a hair space existed, which is just like... Oh, my God. Like, barely Let there. Like, what, you. one pixel space? Like, it's crazy. What would you even use that for? But it, I, it exists. I love a good hair space. And <laughs> this story might make you love a good hair space, too. So I didn't really know what hair spaces were for either, except when I started working at Penguin Random House and was typesetting books, there would be edits from our copy editor there, and it'd be like, add a hair space here. And you know where it was. So it was punctuation. So when you have, let's say, a single quote next to a double quote, because let's say the person that is saying the quote is quoting someone else, it looks better if you put a hair space so you can easily distinguish single quote than double quote instead of three quote marks in like a novel. I honestly would have just assumed that you needed to write that in a way where you don't have three quotes. So that's good to know that even that is... Yeah, and and they give you that example in the article as well. But one of my favorite examples of using hair space is on either side of your... Oh, I knew you were going to say that. I love an M dash, and we always bicker about should there be a space before and after. And you've actually influenced me lately. I've been putting spaces before and after my M dashes. I don't know what's happening to me. Um, I'm falling apart. (laughs) Oh, that's a thing too. I like. I don't think there's any harm in mentioning we've been upgrading the font licensing book to be able to get it out and for sale. And we've been working with a really awesome editor, Candice. Hi, Candice, and. She didn't put spaces around her M dashes, and I was like, "I saw this isn't wrong." Olivia's so happy. I hate this. I was so happy. <laughs> I knew she did it because I knew if you wrote it. So, um, an M dash is quite long, and it really can butt up against the words on either side, which to some people is unattractive to the eye, like yours, Micah. <laughs> and in order to kind of have that M dash have a little bit more breathing room, editors at publishing houses put a hair space on either side of the M dash. Again, that is like definitely a privilege of having a detailed typeset, you know, set of text. Oftentimes you don't put a space if you're moving quickly or if it's digital, you just put a full space. But I don't know, maybe on my Instagram captions that I write for the league, I'll use this copy and paste hair space <laughs> and make us both a little bit happier. It is cool. Plus, I I'm thought so it was excited. pretty hilarious that they threw in at the end. Zero width space, hair space, thin space, M space, all these actual real spaces. Then the last one, of course, is Caucasian astronaut, which is the little emoji of the white spaceman. Cool. Oh, I wasn't fast enough to get that, but I like that now. <laughs> I just thought that was cute. So <laughs> no, good, awesome. good tool to bookmark. Link. Interesting education there about some M spaces. What is our next yeah, one? Because I, I know you're excited, excited about that one too. I'm so excited. And Micah, I want to know where you found this, but let me introduce it. And it's Design Books by Women and People of Color, curated by Yuan Wang. So this is a Notion page. And so everything's organized in cards. And it's exactly what it says. It's a bunch of books written by um, women and people of color. And they're all about design and all sorts of design, which I was really excited about. You know, design for inclusion um, and about algorithms that are biased in our digital world. Talks about ethics, politics, and social impact. But then also has books that are about 
color and typography and graphics, so more tactical design. And then some books by famous designers like Louise Feely and I think Martina Flor is in here as well. So just a lot of resources and I'm really excited to dive into these. There's even some about personal growth and leadership. So I think there's like something for everybody in here. There really is. It's a great combination of heady cultural Let's learn about the world and the people in it and biographies mixed with here's really tactical stuff. I realized going through it, I was like, shoot, I love a lot of these books. Like, honestly, Everybody Writes is in the content strategy section, which, of course, is design. It's like designing what should go into a book. Yeah. And there's a lot of book apart books. They make really good tactical nonfiction books about how to do xyz there's ellen lupton's design is storytelling which is really fun and even there's a couple business books here like dan mall's pricing design is a really great read too i love a good helpful pricing book that's why that one caught my eye and there is even the web du bois data portraits in here so there's a yeah. link as well and we've talked about that on the podcast so i'm super excited to see that getting some recognition it deserves yeah and plus there's a link to yuan wang's twitter in here which is how i found this on twitter she's an interesting mix of impressive designer background mixed with teaching and like leadership coaching which i think is what she does now i like her twitter oh my god well i'm definitely gonna give her a follow after this i'm excited to see this grow as well i think there's a lot more titles that can be added to this in the near future yeah totally i'm sure she's open to that maybe 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 you can be on that list olivia huh we'll we'll work on it we'll work on one day uh now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say hey thank you to our sponsors which we have a new sponsor starting this week very excited about this thank you to adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode exciting that we finally get to work with them their creative suite is like one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install embed use pretty much however you like we've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well if you're looking for those And uh, it's an awesome tool if you aren't already using it, which a lot of designers are. But we have a lot of people on here who might want to know about Adobe's great tools. And so we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal, including several open source fonts this week. Hot Mm. take. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. At the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. So cool. I just love the way that this podcast is heckin' going. Like, to be able to do this every week and have fun with you and talk about this cool stuff and then... Like, have Adobe on board, have our membership. We get so many nice flipping messages from our members every week that just warms my darn heart. I don't know. I think we got a message from our member Tom Lucy this week who Mm. said, you know, just great, like, keep on doing great work. And that stuff really motivates us and keeps us going. So we appreciate all of that. All right, before we gush too much, our next article. I also found this one this week. 
This is a beautiful article. I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. I love the design of this article. And I, it caught me because the title is Don't Design for Mobile, which is the opposite of what a lot of advice is. And I was like, oh, having a bold opinion. Let's read some of this. Olivia, what did you what did you think about this? As someone who doesn't do a ton of digital design, what were your takeaways? I thought it was fascinating because for me, I'm like, oh, web designers are their own category of people. And they design things for digital products. And that is something that's responsive. And um, I usually don't think that much farther than that unless I have to like dive into the project myself. But there was really fascinating things I haven't thought about before. They talk about the viewport, you know, how when we design for a phone, we're designing for the viewport and there's these standard pixels. Well, actually, the height of your viewport's a little bit shorter than your actual screen height because of like all the little add-ons that you know your carrier provides on your screen another thing i found interesting was pointers they do this great infographic about how small and specific your pointer can get if you're using a mouse um, and how specific you can point to the screen but when you have you know a touch screen your finger is a bigger surface area than a mouse and so then you have to take um, that into account when you design your products and making sure there's enough room for your finger to click on something specifically instead of clicking on something else. One last thing before I let you take over, the idea that a keyboard has to show up if you have a text box on mobile. So you have to take that into account that if you want your viewer to type something in and to touch a text box, that keyboard's going to take up probably half the screen now. And you should think about that design as well. I love all that. Yeah, and there's a few other points in here, too, about certain devices fetch your location and have the ability to do that better than others. There's a whole category for network speeds. And so I, I think I think what I got from this article is don't think about mobile as this general category where it's just based on screen size. You actually should be designing for these individual elements. Yeah, no, I, I love this. And um, even as someone that's not often designing for the web, I love kind of hearing about all these other details that we have to consider when we are designing for mobile. So awesome find. I'm super excited about the next find as well. And that's from CSS Tricks. And the title of that is Nailing the Perfect Contrast Between Light Text and a Background Image, which is tough to nail. It I'm not going to lie. And, and we should probably give the caveat that this is more code than we usually share. You know, this is certainly not like a developer newsletter, right? Even though I am a developer and developers have to design. But I thought it was worth mentioning. You could you could ignore all the code and read the things that they're talking about and learn something, I think, yeah. by saying, here's how to mentally think about how much opacity a background image should have or uh, what colors make text readable on top of what opacity images those kinds of things where you can honestly just skim over the code if you're not interested in the javascript part and still learn stuff yeah i was really interested and i i didn't quite understand all the code but they're like mathematically finding the right overlay to put between the photo and the text to make the text most legible and by doing that they're taking colors of pixels and they're taking the rgb values and doing a mathematical equation to get the right place and that is something that i have always found interesting and i remember in college i actually learned how to mathematically color correct photos Ooh. and oh it was so fascinating and i actually wrote down a whole tutorial on how to do that so maybe i'll share it with what? um where does that live so actually it was so funny so this class was called advanced studio procedures so it was after our sophomore year when we all learned 
the creative suite together, you could go on this like advanced like path and just learn like a little bit more. And so we learned about different color spaces. What's Adobe RGB 1998 versus sRGB kind of like super nerdy stuff, which is right down my alley. But we also learned how to color correct photos mathematically and it's very doable and you don't need to know any code to figure it out. You just have to follow this kind of method of subtracting and adding RGB values. It's really fascinating. And at the end of the class, our final project was to make a book with tutorials on everything we learned during the class. So I still have a tutorial on how to do that. That's in a fascinating. Book in my room. Yeah. Yeah, I, so, w- I want to read that. I, just, I love when, you know, because I think a lot of design sometimes is optical adjustments, but it is always fascinating to get a mathematical perspective on these sort of things. Before noticing this article, I naively just assumed if you're going to put text over an image, you apply some amount of opacity and color, and then you just live with the details. And it never occurred to me that code could be a really great solution where it's figuring out what those values are for you. I'm totally going to try to utilize this on some of the league stuff, to be honest. Yes, and let me know when you do. I'd love to see the final product. Yeah, for sure. You will. Thanks. Our last (laughs) article is a fun one. It's certainly the most digestible out of all these, so we're excited to share it. It's from Fast Company. And its clients loved this designer's work. Turns out he was an AI. So it's this crazy story. Yes, it's true, which is wild. There was a Russian design firm that was making these designs that were whimsical, kind of out there for today's design world. And they were all computer generated as well. And so, I mean, this goes into the category of generative design that we've been talking about actually quite a bit these days. And so they just like named this designer Nikolay Ironov and didn't tell the clients that was working with this design firm. They were like, oh yeah, Nikolay designed this, that, and that. And clients were really impressed. And then after the work was finished, they later was like, yeah, Nikolay is an AI machine. Surprise! Had his own portfolio on the internet that I visited. It looks like it's a human. Uh, Oh, you visited? I didn't yet. I should. (laughs) I think it even mentioned in here, maybe he had like an Instagram where he was sharing his work too. I might have made that up. But I mean, this is this is a two minute read. It's just like a funny, weird story. But shoot, how do you sleep at night? Like literally telling clients that yeah, it's a real yeah. person. And then I don't know, like funny experiment and very interesting. And uh, I think they had a nice like closing line being like, this has proven that AI is not some distant future for design. It's very much the present. And we do think about like, oh, AI in the future, like one day we're all gonna be extinct. I also don't believe that's correct, but it is funny seeing how things are being implemented and how that's working out. Right. Totally. Yeah. All right. Thing. We are going to jump into our nerd alert, which what are we talking about again? Huh? Huh? We are talking about the difference between type and lettering. I have some great notes. We shared an article in the newsletter this week if you want even like a more detailed outline of this. But let's start. So typography is movable type. It's letter forms, prefabricated letters that have been designed and typeset is the act of moving those around to create text. It It's really important to understand that it is a set of an alphabet. It is a set of movable letter forms. We're most familiar with it in our use of fonts. But I do like to say that, you know, typography doesn't always have to live in a font file on your computer. You can cut out a big alphabet out of construction paper. And if you move it around and create text, that's typography too. That's like a very elementary way to think about it. Then there's lettering. 
And a lot of times people confuse these and mix them up. Lettering's definitely become more popular in recent years. And I think it's important um, as designers to use the terminology correctly. What do you know about the differences between type and lettering, Micah, before well, I Well, the easiest explanation is that lettering is you drawing all the letters individually by hand. And typography mm-hmm. is a preformed set of designs for the letters that you can reuse. Yes. Yeah, that's like an easy, digestible way to put it. So when do we use lettering in our projects? There are some projects where I have to decide, should I do lettering for this or should I use typography? Sometimes I use a little bit of both. You can use lettering when the client wants something totally custom, like they haven't seen before. It's certainly a case for lettering. You're drawing those letters by hand. You are drafting each letter. It can have a more handmade feel to it because hand lettering is really popular. And sometimes, you know, the kind of quirks and inconsistencies of writing things by hand that people find so charming is actually sought after by a client that wants to use lettering that might not have the same feel as typography. But that's not always the case. There are really clean, beautiful, super elegant lettering pieces out there as well of someone that literally drafted each by hand to you know, create a certain look and to create these letters that didn't look anything like an example of that being something like a custom logo where you're just drawing the letters that are in the company's name, not every letter under the sun so that you can reuse it. It's just like a custom version of that word. Yes. I did that recently for a client. I had a great time and we did make something totally unique that didn't exist in a typeface out there with all the parameters she requested. It's also important to distinguish that with your client because, you know, if you have this beautifully hand letter thing and it feels a little more digital, they might think that you used a font and they might say, hey, can we put like the heading to our about me section in our website in that font? And then you have to say, ah, oh, this isn't a font. Mm. This is hand lettering. That's a good time to distinguish it. When you're fitting letter forms into a custom shape, it's a great time to consider lettering because um, no one likes... Uh, fonts that have been distorted and stretched in ways that are unattractive and not what the type designer intended for. So that might be a case to do custom lettering if you're trying to fit letters into a circle and know that you're going to have to kind of mess with the proportions a lot. When letter forms are being integrated into an illustration, I saw a really cool book cover and it was designed by Nick Masani and it had these light bulbs but the wires inside the light bulbs actually formed letters and formed text and so they were glowing and they were totally integrated it was really cool and it was just really elegantly done i definitely suggest you go into his portfolio to check it out another case for lettering is if there's a letter form reference that the client wants that's really really obscure okay listen to me here like let's say game of thrones which is in this really specific time period way long ago in medieval europe finds like a sign from medieval Europe and was like, I want my letters to look like this. Well, it's possible that no one's made a font that has those specific letter forms in that shape. And that's a case when you're going to have to be like, okay, let's like drill down and use this reference and create our own custom situation. And the Game of Thrones title was likely lettering as well, if I'm thinking about that correctly. That's an interesting (laughs) in-between too, because I think a lot of people are curious about making their own font. And lettering can be a cool dipping your toes into that by drawing just a handful of characters and getting good at drawing characters. 
before having to commit to the whole process of making a whole darn font. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of overlap between type design and lettering. And I was in Lynn Yoon's lettering class. We actually learned a lot of type design terminology and strategies as well. So that was pretty interesting. And then I want to add like one little bonus fact that I actually found in the article we shared this week. The difference between calligraphy and lettering, because people mix those up as well calligraphy we can think of as penmanship so that's closer to just writing letters on the fly obviously with like a very refined hand but lettering is draftsmanship you're actually drawing these letters you're finessing it's not on the fly as much of a really well drafted piece that's such a useful distinction i get it right it's the difference between writing well and illustrating well Exactly, exactly. Lettering is much more closer to illustration than calligraphy is. So that's a good thing to think about. Both um, of which are obviously learnable, right? But it's it's a different skill set, a different mindset that you're going into it with. I practice like calligraphy and lettering all the time and that definitely helps inform each other as well at that same time. So finally, typography. Okay, so like Lettering sounds amazing. Why would I use typography? Well, there's a lot of benefits to type too. It's a repeatable system of movable letter forms. So already that's way more efficient. You just type something on your keyboard, the text appears. Way different than lettering where you have to think about each and every letter form and design all of those. So it's way more efficient. There's just less expertise on the drafting of letter forms if you're using typography. You don't have to totally understand where the weight lies in the capital letter k or specific stuff like that that's really specific to type design so by using typography yes that's you making the distinction between creating custom letter forms or using a font that already yes yes yeah that those distinguishes so and then finally like i was saying that sometimes you might have obscure references from a client Maybe it's not an obscure reference. Maybe you're designing the logo for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and someone's asking you to look like New York in the 1950s. There's a lot of fonts out there that look like New York in the 1950s. And it's probably something that you'll be able to acquire, even though I do think The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel logo was also lettering. Just (laughs) (laughs) But that's a good point that, like, uh, you know, not every client is going to have the budget for the extra time and effort to do a thing like that. And so if they're coming to you saying shoot, we've got a pilot coming out in a month and we really need something that looks good to bring into the meeting next week. They probably don't have time and money for lettering. And so you're just like, ah, here's a cool font that's like similar to what you want and then good enough. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's important to distinguish the two and I think it's great to know you have options depending on what kind of project you have. When I know I have a little bit more time for a project, like I, I love the opportunity to get into lettering. It kind of scratches an itch for me and my old type design habits. And like you get to create something totally from scratch. That's incredibly satisfying at the end of the day. So definitely encourage, even if you don't want to become a letterer, to dabble in it. I think it can you know help inform your design practice as well if you enjoy drawing it's kind of a fun thing to get your toes into that too be like i'm gonna draw this on my ipad or on a piece of paper because it would be fun to just you know take an hour to draw some stuff and learn a little bit so that you know if you are curious about those kinds of things which i feel like is where this question comes up a lot uh, then it doesn't have to be some client coming to you being like, hey, I want letters, and you being like, ah, shoot, I don't know if I can do it. Like, it could just be a fun thing that you practice, kind of like you do with calligraphy. You're just like, yeah, you know, it'd be cool to get better at this. Why not? Yeah, yeah, 
A lot of the famous lettering artists actually do become famous because they just practice every day with, you know, a word or a phrase. And they, you know, a project comes viral and then, you know, they become Jessica Hish. That's what happened with her Daily Drop Cat project. So, yeah, do not underestimate the power of persistence and continually just putting something out. Yes. I'm all about ending this podcast on that note. It's a powerful one. <laughs> all right, and one cool. that I believe in. Well, so that was a great overview. Thanks for that, Olivia. Hopefully that got some people interested and answered a couple of questions about that. And uh, awesome flipping articles this week. How fun. Oh, quick note. We're taking a break next week. I'm going, going out of town for a little bit. So... In the meantime, you can catch up on our old episodes, listen to our Lynn interview if you haven't heard of it. There's plenty of goodies um, from our past that you can certainly dive into while we're taking a quick break. Yeah, so that'll be fun. And we will get to hear your chipper, wonderful voice in two weeks. And we'll get to see whatever cool links we come up with just for the newsletter next week. Absolutely. See ya, everybody. Bye. Bye.